last week, this conference that Ravi Zacharias did at UCLA, uh, which is not known for to be a bastion of Christianity. And he had this special uh, question and answer time at the end of the conference. And a very sincere uh, skeptic, if, if that's possible, stood up to ask him a question. I say he was sincere because I don't think he was really trying to be a smart aleck. Uh, I think it was a real issue for him. But he was a skeptic, and he wanted an answer. And he asked them on the panel, Ravi and his partner, these words. If the transformative power of Jesus Christ is so great, and it's the only way to live an abundant life and to never thirst again, How come we don't see more Christians living this transformed, abundant, spirit-filled life? The question of a skeptic. If it's the answer, Christianity is the answer, Jesus is the answer, how come we don't see more Christians living this transformed, abundant, spirit-filled life? And I think tonight Jonah shows us one of the reasons for that. We can deceive ourselves into thinking that what we confess in our theology by our mouths is an accurate barometer of what we actually believe. All right? And we're going to see that, I think, with Jonah. Of course, we also see there's irrationalism in that. That you can actually confess something and believe something else. That is utter irrational. But isn't that so epidemic? It's epidemic in our hearts. It's epidemic in the church. And great complications, painful complications come out of that kind of separation between confession and actual belief. And it's irrational. In fact, I think you could sum it up by the chapter 2, verse 8, where Jonah says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. It's these vain idols, these things we trust in other than the living God that creates this distance between what we confess and what we actually believe. And this chapter reveals that among other things. Now, let's just do a quick review. God came to this well-known prophet, Jonah. Uh, We know from 2 Kings 14 that he was an established prophet. He would have been well-known, probably highly esteemed. And it appears at surface level that this is a man of God. And and I do believe him to be a believer. Um, But God brings a word to him, as he often does, to expose idols. To expose idols in his heart. And his response, his negative emotions that flowed out of that, revealed there were idols in the heart. For one thing, Jonah was a nationalist, and God is an internationalist. So, essentially, Jonah doesn't like God in that way. All right? And so he, instead of responding to God, when he says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against her, Jonah rose and fled to Tarshish from the presence of God. He went down to Joppa, which is about a 50-mile hike. And they didn't have Greyhound. It's so hard to get out of our mindset that travel's easy today. May be expensive, but it's easy. We have some of you planning to go to Utah and South Africa. You don't really think twice about it. Yes, it's expensive. You think about that, but the actual trip itself, no problem. Well, this is a 50-mile hike, 
And so that would have been a very arduous journey in itself. He found a ship going to Tarshish, which is 2,000 miles away. So it's, the, it's about as far from what he perceives to be the presence of God as he can get. That's what he's fleeing from is the presence of the Lord, which is the height of insanity. He knows God is omnipresent, but he's trying to get away from the felt presence of God, as we often do when we cut off ourselves from the, from the people of God and the means of grace. But the Lord hurled. I mean, this sounds like a picture. I mean, if, if, God, if you don't believe God's sovereign in everything, all right, just read that. The Lord hurled. He can throw wind. If you don't think God is sovereign, you need to read that again. He can throw wind. How do you throw wind? He hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And so we've seen in the last couple of weeks... The Lord's call to Jonah and his jealousy for the nation, Jonah's sinful response to God and his jealousy for himself. And yet even in that, God's command of the wind and his jealousy for Jonah. He loves Jonah. And I think it's remarkable because in a sense, God is saying to Jonah, go, run. If you want to go, run ahead. But even in that, God doesn't forsake him because he's his. God will not, if you are a son or daughter, God will pursue you like a bloodhound. He will, you are his, once you are his, you stay his. And in this, see, we, in this sense, we see both God's anger and his, his uh, grace. All right? We tend to treat God's anger like, you remember Randy Quaid in Christmas Vacation? The embarrassing uncle? All right? Uh, the anger of God is oftentimes treated in the church like the embarrassing uncle that you don't want anybody to know about. But we've got a misconception of that anger because God's anger is not capricious like ours. We don't ever know what's going to set us off. It's such arbitrary anger. It's based on how tired we are, how hungry we are. We just may be in a bad frame of mind. And so you never know what's going to set someone off. But God's anger is consistent because it's holy anger. And do you know... It's good that God is angry. Imagine a world that is broken where the deity that created the world is not angry over brokenness. The brokenness of the world requires a holy, angry God. In other words, the anger of God is the hope of the world. Imagine if God was not angry at Jonah's rebellion. He just allows Jonah to persist in his rebellion. Jonah's hope is God's anger at him. All right? We got to keep that in mind. When our children uh, disobey, their hope, in other words, they would become convicts if we were not angry at their sin and rebellion. Their hope is our anger. That is, they don't even realize it. Okay? Their hope is our righteous anger at their disobedience. And that is Jonah's hope as well. And we're going to find out it's these mariners on this boat's hope as well. All right? And that kind of brings us to verse 5. In verse 5, it says, Then the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. And they hurled, there's that same word, um, God hurled the wind, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down 
and was fast asleep. Now, this is not a cruise liner, all right? Um, These are cargo ships, all right? The fundamental purpose of a cargo ship was to transport goods. And so the fact that they are throwing the cargo overboard tells you this is a bad deal. In other words, they're not just throwing their, their possessions overboard. They're throwing their profits overboard. I mean, this must have been some kind of storm. Experienced seamen do not get scared at normal storms. Okay, they're used to them. I can remember <laughs> I was flying. Heather, back when she was in Point of Grace, they were singing in Seattle. And so I had a few days off. And, and so I flew into Salt Lake City and got a plane there. And I was flying to Seattle to see her and get on the road with them. Uh, and we hit turbulence. And the guy sitting next to me happened to be a Delta pilot. He was just being transported to his next uh, destination. And so he, he, had the, he, he took the seat next to me. And uh, he regrets it even to this day. Um, um, and, and so we're in that turbulence and I'm basically grabbing his hand and I don't mean, I mean, I'm like grabbing him like within the fingers. I mean, it's like that. I'm like, is everything okay? I mean, I was asking, I was asking him to commentate every bump and, and he is getting lit. I didn't care if he was mad at me, uh, but he was absolutely just comfortable. No big deal. And that comforted me. Now, what if he'd have been shaking in his boots? Then, then it would have been a bad situation. Well, that's where we have these mariners. These guys are seamen. And the storm has come and they are throwing stuff overboard. I mean, they are utterly fearful. In fact, verse 10, if you look over in verse 10, you can see it. The men were exceedingly afraid. They believe they're going to die. This is probably a hurricane. They didn't know when hurricanes would hit. Um, it may have been some kind of tsunami. We don't know. But these guys are frantic. And I also think, though, as they're throwing these, these, uh, this cargo over, overboard, it kind of reflects how superficial we tend to treat our problems. They think the problem is the, is the ship's too heavy. All right. They think the problem is the storm and they can fix their problem by kind of throwing the stuff overboard. But that wasn't the real problem. The root problem was not the cargo nor the storm itself. And I think we tend to think that way. We think our circumstances are our problem. Okay. And if I can just change my circumstances, I can fix the problem. God oftentimes uses circumstances to expose the problem. Their problem were two, was twofold. Jonah's sin. And due to the way they were acting, their paganism, all right, their idolatry. It kind of reminds me of David and Goliath. You know, you've heard the movie. If this movie didn't move you to tears, something was wrong facing the giants. Now, that that movie will move you to tears for two reasons. It'll stir your emotions, and secondly, it's bad theology. Uh, (laughs) Let me share it. And I love that movie. Now, before you stone me... um, And I would show it to any... I love that movie. I really do. But here's what I'm saying. Um, They took Facing the Giants, that story, from the story of David and Goliath. All right? 
And in the movie, their problem is the fact that they're infertile. Their problem is the fact that uh, he needs a new pickup truck and he needs to win football games. He's going to be fired. And, and so if they have just enough faith, all these things are going to happen. He's going to win football games. They're going to get the new uh, washing machine. He's going to get the new pickup truck. That's not always the case. But most importantly, in the David and Goliath account, Goliath's not the problem. Israel's the problem. Okay? Understand that. Israel, remember the story, wanted a king like all the other nations. And God said, okay, I'll give you what you want. So he gives them a king like the other nations. And the next thing you know, they're under the dominion of the Philistines, even though God had promised Abraham that I'm going to curse those who curse you. But because of covenant unfaithfulness, instead of God cursing those who cursed them, those who curse them have dominion over them. The Goliath is not the problem. He's the symptom of the problem. The real problem is their idolatry. Okay? Now, we also see in that, uh, that story that uh, God graciously and mercifully raised up an anointed man from the tribe of Judah who crushes the head of Goliath and his victory is imputed to Israel. What does that sound like? Uh, that is a story that points us to a greater David. But what I'm saying is sometimes the circumstances of life aren't really the problem. God uses those circumstances to expose the problem. God always has us in sanctification school, as I said this morning. I think God has Jonah in sanctification school. He's exposing the problem. He's also dealing with these men at the same time. I also think this is an example of natural religion. Do you know that there are very few atheists? I, I just don't believe there are many as many atheists as there claims to be. Because God has written the law of God in their hearts. And Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has revealed it to them. Romans 1.19 But they, although they knew God, they did not glorify God, nor were thankful. They exchanged the truth for lie and God gave them over. So a, a full-blown atheist, okay, has been given over in my estimation. And this natural religion is showing itself... Because they know that there's some kind of divine power behind the storm. Now, they don't know him. They don't know the the true God, the personal God. But they know there's something uh, supernatural behind this storm. I would call this a pantheistic panic. What is a pantheistic panic? Well, a pantheist is someone who believes in many gods. Or or, a polytheistic panic, rather, not a pantheist. Uh, A polytheistic panic. A pantheist just believes that everything is God. A polytheist is someone who believes that there are many gods. So this is a polytheistic panic. They don't know which god, but they know there is something there. And so they act uh, in a state of, you could say, spiritual futility. And so they say, everybody pray to your god. Let's cover all of our bases. And that shows us the, the limits of natural religion. Do you remember in Acts 17, you've got uh, these, these pagans on Mars Hill. They've got all these idols constructed to every conceivable god. And even for the gods they don't know, they have the idol constructed for the unknown gods. They just want to cover all their bases. That's how people are today. They, that's where you see the superstition, okay? Uh, Nate came in the other day and said, Dad, he said, I know you don't believe in luck. Uh, I I don't allow the word luck in our home. I just I I can't stand that word. It makes it sound like there's not a personal deity behind the events of of the world. And and he said, I know you don't believe in luck, but I just want to tell you, you remember that day I hit three home runs? I said, yeah, I I remember that. We talk about it every day for the last three years. (laughs) 
He said, someone gave me a four-leaf clover right before that game. And I said, uh, son, do you know what that four-leaf clover had to do with those three home runs? He said, what? I said, absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. All right? Uh, but it was a cute story. It was a cute story. Um, but we, we all have, you know, uh, we've all struggled with those kind of things where you're trying to, in some way, uh, act superstitiously. Uh, something good happens to you, you got a shirt on, you wear that shirt. You know, you baseball players do that all the time. And that's what these guys are doing. Keep in mind, Jonah's not the only one running from God here. Who else is running from God? These mariners. They don't realize it, perhaps. Uh, they're, they're pagans, they're polytheists, but they're, they're worshiping false gods. And as we're going to see, God's going to use a reluctant prophet to bring these men to faith. We won't see that today. We're only going to go to verse 9 today. But he's going to use this reluctant prophet to bring these men to faith. And so, um, notice as well that this is the second time in the text that Jonah has gone down. It says Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship. Now, earlier in verse 3, it says he went down to Joppa. Oftentimes, that kind of language um, speaks to running from God. It's, it's, it's running from God, which always leads downward. And not only do we pay a price when we do that, uh, others oftentimes pay a price as well. Uh, and when we run from God as believers, He's even more committed to making sure we're miserable in our rebellion. I mean, that's the way it works. God is, is fundamentally committed to our sanctification. He will ensure it. And so when we rebel as believers, He is even more committed to making us miserable in our rebellion. The anger of God is our hope. We cannot lose sight of that. The anger of God is our hope. That's why uh, an unbeliever is not the most miserable human being on the face of the planet. Disobedient believers are. Disobedient believers have too much God in them to enjoy the world, and they have too much world in them to enjoy God. That's a bad combination. And that's essentially where Jonah is in this situation. Not to mention the fact that we rob others of the blessing uh, that God intends to give through us. Do you realize that wherever we go, God has called us to be agents of the new creation project. God is, is making all things new through Jesus. And as Christians, as believers, we are agents of that new creation project. And when we're rebellion, and yesterday uh, Robert taught us so well um, uh, in the men's Bible study of how pornography has, has, has infiltrated the church. And because of that... Um, Godly men who have now given themselves over to it, they've lost their power. Uh, They've lost their power to be instruments, to be agents, because this sin has divested them of of the the filling of the Holy Spirit. And and, and that's essentially where Jonah is. He, uh, you know, at at face value, it doesn't appear he can be a, a, um, a witness in any regard. Not only that, notice as well, he he withdraws from these guys. Uh, Now, the text doesn't elaborate on why Jonah fell asleep. How do you fall asleep in a hurricane? I mean, I cannot relate to... I can relate to Jonah on most things. I can't relate to Jonah 
falling asleep in the middle of a hurricane. I'm just going to tell you right now. Um, perhaps it was due to the fact that he had, he had basically hiked 50 miles. And he was worn out. That, that may be part of it. There's, there's a human factor. He, there's, there's a, you know, we're finite uh, beings. Or could it be that disobedience itself wears saints down? I mean, you can't thrive and flourish as a believer in disobedience. It just wears you down. Why? Because disobedience for the believer brings subject, sub, subjective guilt. It brings anxiety. It brings fears. It just wears you down. You cannot live in disobedience to God and not be worn down by it. Again, God's anger is our hope. Or maybe, perhaps there's a sense in which his conscience was being seared. I don't know. Maybe he was at peace with his decision. Have you ever met someone who professes to believe, uh, be a believer and they're obviously in sin and they tell you, I have a peace about it? Uh, God told me to leave my spouse. Why? Uh, not a good cook. I have a piece about it, you know. <laughs> Whatever. And, 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 and you hear that and you go, that is insane. That's not peace. Peace is the fruit of the Spirit. Oh, uh, o. Palmer Robertson said, Jonah had plenty of peace. He was sleeping like a baby. At the very time when he was running from the will of God, he had great peace. Beware of disobedient peace. All right? We had to rename it. That's not even peace. But beware of it. Um, there was a time in college I had that disobedient peace. And uh, that may be where you are tonight. That is a very dangerous place to be. Um, well, like Jonah asleep in the boat, um, I think many themselves think they're safe from God's judgments and his assessment simply because they cut themselves off from God's means of grace. Um, I met a woman Friday night. She's not in church anywhere. And one of our members asked her, so, so where do you go to church? And she said, I read my Bible every Sunday morning. It's my time. It's me and Jesus. I just sit on my, uh, in my living room and it's me and Jesus. And I just read my Bible. And she didn't say, I have peace about it. But she, she had all the signs of that. She, she was proud of that. Well, I don't need the church. And I wanted to ask her, and I didn't. I wanted to ask her, who do you have to love? Okay? Okay, because the, the mark of a believer is love. So who are you having to love in your form of Christianity? Okay? God uses the church to grow us up. Hebrews 10 tells us that without the church, we can't persevere in the faith. Who are you loving? Who is God using to file the, the, like, you, like a sandpaper? Okay, that's what God does in the church as well. But this woman had all the evidence of peace. She was proud of where she is. That is a dangerous place to be. And the Lord, as he says, of, of heaven and earth and the sea, isn't confined or limited by our location. He can find us where we are in our disobedience. He does if you're a believer. It's a fact. You can't outrun him and you can't hide from him. Um, if anyone could, it was Jonah. He was going in the opposite direction where he thought God was. And I also think that this pictures the relationship that um, God's people have with the church, with, with the world, okay? Um, it's very important we understand that. The mariners here are in dire straits 
because of a believer's disobedience. All right? The storm has come on them because of the, of the believer's disobedience. And the opposite is true as well. Um, when we are functioning as God's agents, it benefits the world. You think about all the progress in science and political science and medicine um, and, you know, even the abolition of slavery. That was birthed in large part by believers. Okay? There have been books upon books. There's a guy named Rodney Stark. If you, if you are interested in reading uh, on that issue, here is a very highly esteemed sociologist, okay, who, who tracks how Christians were behind all of these different things today, like science and political science and, and, and education and, and, and abolition of slavery, so many different things. But on the flip side... When we lose sight of the fact that wherever God calls us, He calls us to be instruments, in our disobedience, doom is going to come in a very real sense. Consider the rise of 19th century liberalism in Germany. It came uh, to Germany. It was really kind of birthed there uh, in Europe. And that kind of created a vacuum in the church. And, And so what you see in Germany is this led to this highly nationalistic kind of church that was neglecting the gospel. And guess what arose out of that? A man named Hitler. All right? And, there, and there's, a, there's a great book uh, written by Erwin Lutzer on the silence of the church during that time. The reason the church was silent was they had no gospel. All right? And so when the church is disobedient, the church is neglecting the gospel, bad things happen. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson again. He says, you will will invariably bring trouble to the life of others as well as to your own life if you're walking contrary to the will of God. And he points out that uh, the numerous prison ministries who have found Jonah to have been a book that connected with prisoners for this reason. They know they're running from God. They understand what it means to hurt other people especially the ones they love, by going against God's will. And so that's where Jonah is. His disobedience has brought great harm even to these pagans. Well, these polytheists uh, do not like to leave any God unappeased, and so they go to Jonah to appeal to his God. Notice verse 6. So the captain came... And said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? (laughs) Arise, call out. Um, By the way, we've seen those verbs already. Notice in verse 2. God said to Jonah, arise and call out against Nineveh. And now he's hearing those very words from these pagans. God has a way of getting our attention. He says, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Again, this rise. I think that these words, arise, call out, would have echoed in Jonah's mind. He would have been reminded of what God said to him. Um, And perhaps it would have triggered the idea that he had failed 
in his, his horizontal commission because he was failing vertically. Now, I want you to think about this. The mariners don't have a worldview that's large enough to explain what's going on. They're polytheists. They believe in many gods. And so they don't have a worldview that, that, that can serve as an explanatory mechanism, if you will. And so what they're doing doesn't make sense. Their responses to this storm does not make sense. They don't know how to deal with it. Uh, one great historical scholar says there's no knowing that doesn't begin with knowing God. If you don't know the true and living God, you, can't, you have nothing to explain uh, the reality of brokenness. You have nothing to explain the goodness of creation, the brokenness of a fallen creation, or what will fix that broken uh, creation. And I, and I think our situation isn't far removed from that. You know that we live in polytheistic uh, Louisville, and you know that we are functionally polytheistic as well. When you, when you look to several different things in your life to fix a broken world, a fi- a, to fix a broken creation that only the Creator can fix Himself, you're no different than these polytheists. Uh, we think that if I only had a bigger, uh, a, a, a bigger salary, okay? If I only had a better spouse, uh, if I only had a better church, if I only had better neighbors, I had a better... Ju- you're looking to all these different things to fix... Only what God can fix. You have functional gods. You're a functional polytheist. That's where this, these, these people are. Now notice in verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. By the way, that word evil is the same word that you find uh, in verse 2 when God uh, told, him, told Jonah that there is evil... In Nineveh. And now, (laughs) ironically, there is evil on the boat because of the prophet. And he says, so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And by the way, Proverbs 16.33 says, The die is cast into its lap, its every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign. It fell on Jonah. You cannot, as a believer, run from God. He is too fast and he is... He, he is too sovereign, okay? And that's where, that's where Jonah is. It's very humorous if you think about it. It's humorous because it didn't happen to us. Um, <laughs> and they say, what is your occupation? And where do you come from? They know something's up. What is your country? And of what people are you? Um, now, Jonah's going to answer all of their questions. Almost. He doesn't answer every question. All right? Look with me in verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. That was a way of describing uh, the Israelites um, in international context. Okay? I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven. Who made the sea. The sea that's just... Uh, it's about to turn that boat over, by the way. Who made the sea and the dry land. This is the first time Jonah speaks in the story. Alright? 
So verse 9 is the first time we actually hear from Jonah. And it's both what he does say and he doesn't say that's intriguing. The question he doesn't answer is, what is your occupation? Why do you think that's the case? I don't, we, we, we're just reading into it to a certain degree. But could it be because of his disobedience, he's ashamed to say, I'm a prophet. I am running from God. I'm a prophet. And that's another thing about disobedience. I mean, it absolutely eclipses the glory of God in your life. And it makes you shameful. It makes you shameful to be bold in your witness. Not to mention the fact that it, it just hamstrings the power in your life to be a bold witness. Okay? So he doesn't answer that question. And it's also interesting that uh, the first thing he says here is about his nationality. That wasn't the first question. He says... I'm a Hebrew. I think there's something intentional about that. This is really important to him. This is being very race-centered. That becomes a real problem in the first century, by the way. That's never gone away uh, at that point. And so uh, it also reminds me of the contrast between him and Jesus. Do you remember Jesus was also asleep in a boat? Um, In fact, they were in a storm, but it was not a storm of correction. It was a storm of perfection. They were in the will of God, and they're in a boat. They're in a storm. God, uh, Jesus had said, let, let us get into the boat and let's go to the other side. So the, the, the disciples are obedient to Jesus. They get in this boat and the next thing you know, they're in the middle of a storm. They're right in the middle of the will of God and they're in a storm and Jesus is asleep in the boat. But the difference is that uh, Jonah's sleep was sin-induced and Jesus' sleep was shalom-induced. All right, There's a whole difference between the two. Uh, it's almost like a contrast there. You've got the prophet and then you've got the true prophet, the one who Revelation calls, Revelation 1.5, the, the faithful witness. In fact, uh, in that account with Jesus, it was to demonstrate that he's the son of God, that he has authority over the wind and the waves. Even the wind and the waves obey him. Uh, it says that he rebuked the storm, just like he rebuked the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. All right? And now you have this man uh, who is not demonstrating that he's a prophet. It's the fact that he's hiding that he's a prophet. So in one story, it's to demonstrate that he's the great prophet, the son of God. And in this story, it eclipses uh, the fact that he's a prophet because of his disobedience. That's what disobedience does. Have you ever been in a situation? I won't ask you to raise your hand. uh, Where you, because of your attitude, your... Your actions or your language uh, were embarrassed to tell those around you that you were a believer. Or, if you want to be really specific, an instrument, custodian, and witness of the new creation project. How the hell do you like that title? That's who we are. We're instruments of the new creation project. Jesus is coming in to make all things new. We're the instruments. And have you ever been in that situation? I've been in that situation. All right? On a baseball field, not because of my language, but because of my attitude, all right? I get out there, and um, the old Bear Bryant comes out in me, and then I'm like, mm, I hope these people don't know I'm a preacher. Uh, that's a bad deal, all right? I think I'm having some sanctification. It's slow, though. Um, note the uh, ironic language as well. He says, I fear the Lord. Really? We're in the middle of a storm because you don't fear the Lord. Um, 
He probably has a fear, but it's not a healthy fear. Here's the reason. When you have a healthy fear of God, you long to be in His presence. You don't long to flee from His presence. Okay? That, that's how you know if you have a healthy fear of God. When you have a healthy fear of God, you long for the temple of God. Okay? You, you long to dwell in the temple of God. Better is one day in His courts than a thousand elsewhere. That's the fear of God. And so there is probably some kind of fear, but it's a, it's a perverted understanding of God. It's a perverted fear of God that makes him want to flee him, okay? And so uh, I think that there is some intentionality. Notice as well, he uses the language of land and sea, or sea and land. Uh, typically, uh, it's backwards. It's the, the Lord of the land and the sea. But here, it's the land of the sea and the land, which I think he's emphasizing that in light of the fact that they're on the sea, in light of the fact there's a hurricane on the sea, God is in this. God is sovereign in this. But in another sense, this is an amazing confession. All right? We can nitpick what he doesn't say, but notice what he does say. I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This is sound theology. This, this is good theology. And I think there's an implied warning in here for us. Sound theology does not always result in faithfulness. Just because your eyes are dotted theologically does not mean you have a healthy love and fear of God. I can, I, can, I can take you to Southern Seminary and show you people who would blow your mind at their capacities theologically. And Robert said he walked out of a, a cafeteria one day and he asked the guy, he said, how you doing? He's a student. The guy said, um, what, uptight? I'm struggling. And Robert barely knew the guy. And, and, and he said, so why are you struggling? He said, pornography, just matter of fact. Pornography, all right? You, you can be uh, the greatest of theologians and be unfaithful to God. Jonah, right here, has a sound monotheist. This is the Shema in a very real sense. And yet he is fleeing from God. Um, now, I believe the theology is crucial, absolutely crucial. It's foundational. But it's possible for there to be a significant distance between our confessional theology and our functional theology. All right? And our functional theology reveals what we really believe, not our confessional theology. You've got to understand that. Our hearts are deceitfully wicked. We can deceive ourselves. It is our functional theology that reveals what we really believe, not our confession. Now, our confession's important. It really is, but it's the functional that betrays what we really believe. Now, here's the question I'm going to close with tonight. And then we're going to open the floor with a couple of questions. Is your life a picture of the implications of your confessional theology? That's a key question. Is your life a picture of the implications of your confessional theology? Because on a Sunday night, 
look, you guys are stereotyped. Sunday night Southern Baptists are the faithful ones, right? I'm not to say that people, I'm, I'm no way saying that the ones that don't come on Sunday night aren't faithful. I'm not saying that at all. I'm talking about stereotypically. There are many faithful Christians that don't come on Sunday night. Let me just officially say that. I'm speaking, generally speaking, Sunday night Southern Baptists are considered, you know, typically the more mature, though you do have many mature that don't come on Sunday night. I'm covering my bases. <laughs> all right. Each, most of you, if not all of you, confess Jesus as Lord. All right. Is your confessional theology, is, the, is your life a picture of the implications of that confession? That's the question. He's Lord. All right. And that means he's not just Lord of Sunday night. It means he's Lord of the computer. He's Lord of the television set. He's Lord of my bank account. He's Lord of my, my vocation, my job, my witness. He's Lord of my time. He's Lord. That's a question we have to ask. We need to hear the warning from this Passage, an implied warning. There is a Jonah in all of us. All right? There is a Jonah in all. None of us have graduated from sanctification school. Maybe the running from God isn't specifically like Jonah's here. But maybe you've become comfortable with functional contradictions. All right? Functional contradictions between what you say you believe... And actually how you live. That's the spirit of Jonah. I mean, that is the spirit of Jonah. And thank God again, his anger is our hope. His anger, he will not allow us to persist in that. And that's why it's not only unbelievers like these polytheists, these mariners on the boat and the Ninevites that need a savior. All right? It's not just these Pagans who need a savior. Jonah is a believer. And he needed a savior even as he's on that boat. Every moment of his life. Every minute of his day to cover his contradictions. To cover the distance between what he's confessing and what, how he's actually living it out. And praise God. The one in whom Jonah points. Jesus Christ, the true prophet. All right? The faithful and true witness is that Savior. And it's His blood and it's His righteousness that covers all of those times when there is a distance between what we confess and really what we believe. Again, your function reveals what you believe, not your confession. And when there's that distance, His blood, His righteousness covers that. And it's in understanding that reality. That every moment of the day, I need a Savior. I, I need the gospel every moment. Not just... And listen, C.H. Dodd was the one that... Let me just teach you just for 30 seconds here. There was a man named C.H. Dodd that created this dichotomy that, that persisted in the church for the longest. That he, he taught that there was a message in the New Testament um, called... Uh, the, the, the evangel, the, the gospel. That's for the unbeliever, okay? And then there is a, um, another message that is for the 
uh, or the unbeliever. And then you've got the message, the didactic, the teaching that is for the believer. The believer doesn't need the gospel. The unbeliever needs the gospel. That's what he taught. And so you have this idea that once you get the gospel, you never need it again. That's the ABCs. No, the gospel is the A to Z. Because as I understand the, the, the distance between what I confess and actually what I believe, I've recognized every moment of the day that I need a Savior. And it's in understanding His blood, His righteousness covers my contradictions. He covers my Jonah spirit. And guess what happens when you realize that? When you come to, to a deeper understanding of that, when you understand the glory of the Advocate... Um, that distance begins to progressively shrink. The distance between your confessional theology and your functional theology. That's called sanctification. That's what we're seeing in Jonah. We're going to see it. God's anger is our hope. Let's pray.